Welcome to Break Away from the Rat Race, a podcast series to awaken your entrepreneurial spirit and help you achieve financial freedom. On our show, you'll learn about investments and how to create passive income. Let's get started with your host, Eric Martel. Hi, this is Eric Martel, and welcome back to the show. And today I have uh, Hans Struzina, uh, who is a realtor partner at the Gunderman Group. Uh, it's a real estate uh, a realtor group that is basically very successful in selling about $180 million in real estate. Uh, Hans is also a real estate investor and he's the host of Another Way to Play podcast. Welcome to the show, Hans. How are you doing? Eric, man, thanks for having me on. I'm honored and it's a real pleasure to be here. So uh, really excited to have this conversation with you and, and see what we get into today. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank, uh, so... I really like uh, your show and your format, Another Way to Play, your podcast. Um, and what I like about it is that you're really uh, focusing on kind of, the, I would say, the soft aspect, not, the, not, the, not necessarily the numbers, not the, the calculation, all of that, but really the mindset and the motivation that, is, uh, that are needed to basically uh, kind of break away and find another way to achieve financial freedom. So that's what I really like about, uh, about your podcast. hundred percent, man. That's uh, it really starts internally. You know, you, you can learn all the calculations and the numbers and the uh, IRR and, you know, cap rates and all this stuff. But like until you can really internalize it for yourself and, and, find out what you're trying to accomplish with those calculations and numbers. It's mm -hmm. all for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes, it takes a little bit of courage and guts. And I think we're going to talk about that in uh, a little bit later when we talk about your father and uh, because it takes some courage to actually go and do the jump and then say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to do something that's very few people are doing. Uh, and then, um, so yeah, we're going to get into that. Um, so what does, what, I mean, the whole idea here is to achieve financial freedom. Um, so what, what does financial freedom mean to you? Well, maybe I can, uh, answer that with the tagline that I start every podcast on my show with, which is if you trade hours for dollars, you'll never achieve financial freedom. And to me, what that means is leveraging not only money, but time and your location so that you can, uh, live a life of abundance, both um, financially, so you have money to to do the things you want to do, uh, see the places you want to see, but also the time and the ability to leave your home, leave your desk, uh, and go and actually experience those things. Mm -hmm. Because you know you can have a million dollars a year, you can have a portfolio of real estate or, you know, stocks or, or be making a ton of money at a desk. But if you're stuck in one place and you have to be at that desk for 12 hours a day, six days a week, mm. there's no way you're going to go to Thailand or you're going to go to Asia or you're going to go to Europe or whatever and experience yeah. all these cool things. Like you just, it can't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's a good uh, segue maybe into your, uh, into your father. You mind uh, sharing a little bit about, uh, I think, I think you, you spent a, an hour with him on your show talking about his experience and uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about kind of, uh, you know, his experience and also kind of like how he influenced your, um, your career and your own path. Totally. Well, yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, I had my dad on, I think he was episode three or four on, uh, on my podcast. Um, 
but yeah, he is a real estate attorney, which, you know, typically I think that would represent someone who sits behind a desk and is stuck there all yeah. the time. Um, so it's funny that you, you talk about that, but he, he started it early in his career. He did well in law school, uh, went to, uh, the top, in top law school, uh, graduated near the top of the class, got a great job out of it. Mm-hmm. And then got into the real world and started representing clients and specifically people who had real estate holdings. And he recognized that he was at the desk working really hard to keep these people's, you know, investments in line and help them make new investments while they were anywhere in the world, you know, yeah. enjoying the fruits of that labor. And he rec- he said, you know, man, I got to figure this out. I got to get, get something uh, else going. So, long story short. And if you want to hear the whole thing, go check out that podcast. But he, um, he started basically, uh, becoming a, an in-house counsel for hire, um, which was his first step. And then ultimately started representing some of these clients, um, on sort of a, as needed basis, as opposed to having like a full-time, uh, attorney on staff. So mm-hmm. he had a little bit more freedom, a little more flexibility, and ultimately then took that and started investing himself into various real estate deals. And then um, he's also had the uh, uh, some of the foresight to forego a fee in some cases and actually take equity in certain deals that he has then turned into a big chunk of his retirement plan. Yeah. Um, and then from that, he's taken his practice to a very digital platform and actually started Washington State's first virtual law firm, uh, which he and the other one, his partner are uh, the two general partners of. um, And they literally don't have any overhead except for bookkeeping. And he can literally go to Portugal, uh, which he and his wife spend three, four months a year of and, and work and service clients from there. Cause he has set up this virtual platform yeah. uh, to practice the law firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. And a couple of things that uh, I thought was pretty interesting is that when um, he basically said, now that I've arrived, like he was at the big law firm and he got everything he wanted. Now that I've arrived, I don't like where I am. Kind yep. of thing. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. And that's, then that's, and this is something too that I found when uh, I was an actuary before, an associate actuary. And then, yeah, when I got to that position and basically achieved where I wanted to go, I mean, I didn't like what I was doing. It was basically winding down a defined benefit pension plan every day and then, uh, you know, removing uh, or, or, you know, or affecting people's, uh, you know, retirement, uh, mm-hmm. retirement benefits. So I didn't like that. So how did... Um, how did that, did, did uh, your father influence you in any way into kind of like what you're doing and how you're seeing financial freedom and how you're seeing work and in uh, the career yeah. that you've chosen? Well, when I was young, actually, well, from the time I was young, and he still says this, uh, he basically has drilled into me in one way or another to be an entrepreneur and, or more specifically be my own boss. That was the way he worded it all the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, working for yourself is really the only way to, to be truly free. Cause if you're, if you're working for somebody else, you know, you are, you are tied to their schedule and tied to their pay structure and that sort of thing. So 
and, and he off, often referenced real estate as a vehicle to do that mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, starting a company or uh, yeah. something like that. But that was constantly something that was in my head. And as a concept from a young age, that was something that I turned into a couple of small businesses uh, just in my neighborhood washing Mm -hmm. cars and power washing people's driveways and houses and, you know, doing yard work here and there. And then, um, ultimately took that into like an auto detailing service that I, uh, did at a health club that they owned for a short time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just took those into some other entrepreneurial ventures that, uh, basically were my schedule. I had to kind of bring all the materials and all the stuff and the advertising and collect the money and all that stuff and figure it all out. Yeah. And it was um, a huge influence on me because it, it set sort of a baseline expectation yeah. of the way to pursue wealth and, and freedom. So what did your friends, uh, did you have any, how were you viewed by your friends at the time? You had that, uh, you're a young person and then uh so your friends are studying or whatever and that or they're playing and then here you are you're you're doing auto detailing uh during uh, the evening and afternoon and weekends and stuff like that i don't i don't want to make that sound like i was some mogul per se but i was (laughs) i would i would do some of this stuff like in the summer or on the after school or on the weekends because i was a big athlete so i was constantly in sports pretty much every, you know, afternoon after school in some capacity. Um, But when I was doing it, you know, it was something that I just did. I didn't really think it was that bizarre. And I don't know that I, I eventually pulled one or two of my friends into it here and there, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't something that I remember catching any flack for um, partially because it wasn't ever like a full-time thing for me and partially because it just, I guess it never came up in conversation, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about the school? Did that influence you, help you? Or did you have any teachers that were kind of a good or bad influence well, on you? I, had a, I have one teacher that I can remember specifically. So in seventh grade, it was our English teacher. And me and a couple of my friends were really into cars specifically like supercars, you know, Ferraris and uh, Porsches and, you know, uh, Lamborghini and whatever, whatever other things 12 year or 13 year old boys are into. Um, And we were constantly sort of talking about them in class and, you know, of that, of course, other kids were had an issue with and would, would say things about, and she said one time, like, you know, stop, paying attention to those cars because you're never going to be able to afford those. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuck in my head is like, I'm going to prove her wrong and be at a point where I can't afford that. And, you know, there, there's a couple of chips that got placed on my shoulder throughout um, <laughs> various points in school and sports experiences that drove me in some pretty big ways. But uh, that was one that I remember very distinctly. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I suppose I could go buy, you know, some absurdly expensive car right now if I wanted to, but I have chosen to invest in real estate instead. Yeah. Um, so rather than buy a, a, rather than buy a Porsche or whatever, I have bought a couple of dilapidated multi-unit buildings in Tacoma, <laughs> Washington. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I had the same. I have a similar kind of experience. Like people would tell me, "Listen, oh, I want At the time, I wanted to have like a Range Rover, and then I was wondering, inquiring, like, how much is it? And said, "Well, if you're asking for the price, then you can't afford it." And like, mm -hmm. like, what kind of answer is that? Yeah, and, right. You know, <laughs> and now I don't want it. But um, yeah, so that's uh, it's pretty interesting. Any particular like a subject at school that you were like particularly uh, that was something that you really liked and uh... I was really big into history oh, yeah. for whatever reason I was always just I was watching the history channel I was reading books about history I just sort of devoured it and just it for whatever reason it came easily to me especially mm -hmm. American history but um, almost anything history related I was really into, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then Matt, like once we got into like graphs and, you know, fractions and percentages and, you know, time value of money, like that stuff in history really, or excuse me, in math really sort mm -hmm. of, cause I could see how I could apply this to, yeah. you know, business or my life in some way. But other than that, like, you know, I was a good student. I was able to figure out how to, how to study and how to get good grades in high school. And then I struggled a little bit in college, but then sort of figured that game out and was able to catch back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, once I found my groove and, you know, I was able to be a pretty decent or good student depending on who you asked <laughs> and, uh, and had certain certain subjects that really fascinated me, and and those were the ones in high school. But there was one in college, this one professor, who talked about uh, it was a communications class, not my major, just one that I was taking. And he, I still, I to this day, I don't know his name. I I don't really remember. I remember. Uh, this one lecture he gave because someone raised their hand and said something like, oh, that's so random. What is that? And that was like a thing that people would say all the time. Mm -hmm. And he stopped the lecture and totally took a left pivot on what he was talking about for the day and spent the next like 45 minutes discussing the, the concept of random and how nothing is random and everything <laughs> is on purpose and everything was built by a person to be a certain way. Wow. He's like, the chair was designed by somebody, this blackboard was designed, by, and we just went real deep wow. on that concept. And that was like, for whatever reason, of all the classes I sat through in college, like that one really made an impression on me. Wow. And it made me recognize like, yeah, there was a design behind everything. And somebody made it that way or mm -hmm. wanted it to be that way. Yeah. You were also very good in, uh, in, in the rowing Rowing, I think. Were, were you part of the Olympic rowing team? I, I was in 2016. I, wow. I mentioned I was always in sports, and I eventually found the sport of rowing. Mm -hmm. And from, let's see, I, I started that when I was 14, and then that took me on a 12-year career that culminated in, wow. in the Olympics um, in uh, Rio de Janeiro in 2016. Wow. So that was, uh, I mean, that's quite the it's quite demanding. I mean, the, the training and I mean, it's one thing to be training for the high school team. It's another thing when you're actually going to the Olympic and getting there. I mean, I'm sure it must be extremely demanding on the, so how were you able to juggle all of that? 
Well, I, I mentioned like I was a decent student or, or good student, depending on who you asked, you know, if, if you, if you put it in the context of as a student athlete, I was a pretty good student, but Mm -hmm. as you know, compared to like kids getting four O's, that was not me Mm -hmm. uh, by any means, but I was definitely someone who was passionate and, and doing my very best to be the best rower I could be. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the nice thing about a D1 program like the University of Washington where I went is there is support uh, in tutoring and in selecting your class schedules and stuff like that uh, to help you stay on track and help mm-hmm. you make sure that you're you're able to balance everything. Um, but ultimately, it's just you have to learn time management. You know, you yeah. ha- just like anything, like you want to take on multiple things at once, you have to learn how to prioritize, schedule out, time block, um, and, and work a little harder, uh, or maybe on the weekends or whatever in order to, uh, achieve both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's quite important. And that's a very important skill to learn. And I think, uh, especially when pe- I think, especially people that are, they currently have a full-time job and now they know they need to do a transition. They want to go, they want to trade. They don't want to trade the hours for dollars anymore. They want mm-hmm. to go and, and start a business and do real estate investment and all of that. But then they have a full-time job and then they don't know this is too much now. They have to, uh, they have to basically uh, come up and then uh, organize their time and, and manage their time so that they can do their full-time job. They can also do their real estate investment and all of that. And I yeah. think, I think you learn at a very young age how to do all of that, how to manage that time. Do you think that helped you? That was a critical skill for you to, uh, to do what you're doing right now? Absolutely. And to go a little more macro, like after college, I started doing a lot more personal development and reading uh, and listening to podcasts and, and just getting exposed to a lot more concepts in the, in the one that I have, maybe had the hardest time understanding in the beginning was the concept of time Mm -hmm. and how time is our number one asset. And it is uh, without a doubt the most precious resource that you have. So to say that, which is funny, like to say you don't have enough time is completely ridiculous because everybody has this exact same amount of time on a one-on-one basis, right? Like Mm -hmm. you and I each have 24 hours in a day to, to do what we do and minus however much we sleep and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can have absolutely leverage time, like what we're doing right now. Like you and I both have brands and we have, you know, messages to get out there. We're recording this once, but it's going to go out there and it's going to leverage itself into other people so that we don't have to rehab this conversation in front of every single person who potentially listens to it. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing with, um, you know, how you choose to spend your time outside of your nine to five job. Like it is not appropriate for everybody just to wholesale quit and go start a venture, whether it's real estate or something else, um, because they've got obligations. They've got, you know, mouths to feed. They've got their mortgage to pay or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, you know, do something on the side just eat in the beginning to get it started sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to take an audit of what it is that you're doing every day and how you're spending your time. Um, because I, I mean, the easy low hanging fruit is TV. Like I haven't had a TV since 2015 when I moved in with my now wife, she didn't have a TV. I didn't, I thought I was going to miss it. I stopped watching TV. I don't watch TV anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have our iPads and, you know, phones and stuff anyways, but, um, but like 
taking that time in like reading a book or going and analyzing some real estate deals like that realization after I got out of college and then, you know, obviously having the reps of time management um, in college and, and juggling everything really helped me sort of take that leap into the real estate investing world. Once I was, once I was actually ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, uh... It, it requires some sacrifice. Obviously, it's a lot easier to just kind of sit there or go and uh, have a drink with friends all the time and or for, you know, for dinner and stuff like that. It takes some discipline. It's especially hard if you have kids at home, then you have to, you know, figure out a way to spend time with the kids and then also work and, uh, and do your other endeavors and stuff like that. But you have to think also that, you know, you're doing that for your kids as well. And for me, it was also about leaving a legacy for my children and grandchildren. So that was my motivation, uh, you know, for, for doing that, spending that extra time and stuff like that. And so for, for you, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was just thinking like, I don't have kids admittedly, so I'm maybe not the the best expert on this, but Mm -hmm. you know, I always feel like when I watched my dad do his work, like I wasn't involved with him doing whatever he was doing, but Mm -hmm. I knew he was doing stuff. And -hmm. then I would go into his office and I would see various books. Um, I remember one in particular, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which almost every real estate person is in the entire world has read Um, and not having any clue what it was about. But I knew he was in there reading stuff. I knew he was doing, I knew he was doing stuff. And if you would have brought me into some of those maybe earlier, I may have had a different appreciation for edu- you know, self-education and you know, bill paying and like including your kids in some of these educational or, or even mundane processes I don't think is inappropriate. And I think in mm-hmm. retrospect, if he would have pulled me into the office once in a while and been like, this is what our electric bill costs. You know, mm. This is how you write a check. Mm. This is, you know, this is how much money we spend on this and that. And, or it's like real estate, like we're going to buy this property and it's going to cost this much. It's going to, we're going to have to pay this much, but it'll rent for this much. And like having some of those basic conversations at an early age, yeah. like what talk about an education, man, like you're going to yeah. tee those kids up to just crush it when they get out of high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was uh, yeah. That, that's very important to be to be frank and honest about money. I mean, I think there's kind of a not necessarily a stigma, but it's kind of a cloud around the money discussion with your children um, for some reason. And I think that's very important to open that up and then really share with them how how that works, how money works in a day to day basis, and uh, if you get so much in, <laughs> you want to make sure that you don't get everything out, right? Uh, so yeah so I think that's a good conversation I remember when I started getting an allowance I was like the one condition well other than doing the chores the one condition of of allowance was um we had to balance a a checkbook we had a quicken account quicken 99 or whatever Mm -hmm. version they got us at the time and we had to at any point they could they could come in and say open it up and is it is it reconciled Mm. and you know do you know how much is in there and if the answer was no we didn't get allowance that week and if we did then it was like okay here's your here's your week's allowance um Mm. and i you know it's funny because I don't, I'm not good at, I, I took accounting. I did well in accounting in school. I dislike accounting a lot actually yeah. personally, and I don't do it, <laughs> but I do have a really 
good sort of mental frame of like money coming in, money going out and can kind of keep track of that in my head to some degree. My wife is substantially better at the spreadsheets than I am, but um, I think it's, that's because of that exercise they made us do. Like they made us appreciate money, um, accounting for it, coming in and out. And that was a huge uh, le- learning thing that my parents did. And I think that mm-hmm. was a really good, good thing that they did relative to the respect of, you know, counting and a, keeping track and not overspending and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I always find spend too much time on accounting, I find. <laughs> I, I have like somebody that's full-time on that. And I have a, obviously a CPA that's kind of like does the tax strategy and stuff like that. But I still, even with those two people, I still have spent way too much time on the accounting. Um, you know, so looking at things and why, why are things. So but now I'm looking at least at more looking at the reports and less at the transactions yep. and then saying, okay, what's going on here? What's going on there? Absolutely. You have to know what's going on. Totally. hundred yeah. percent. And if you let that go for too long, you'll, you will find that you get smacked pretty good for yeah. something. And then you're like, Oh, I, I better come back to it. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I, so I agree with you that, yeah, the, the discussion about, uh, you know, money, I think it's a, uh, it's very important. And to me, like, did you have anything like in, uh, like at, at school and stuff like that. What did you study at the University of Washington? I was a business major. Uh, my focus was entrepreneurship. Okay. So how did that help you? Did, was that really helpful in, you, in, getting, in helping you in your career and your real estate investor career? Mm-hmm. And because uh, you, you did some flips, I think, in, uh, in, uh, on the West Coast. You also did yep. some multifamily out of state. Mm-hmm. So... So did that help? Well, my, you know, general business, I think is a great, um, just getting a general business degree is a great way to go for people who want to be in some form of business. Uh, you know, obviously accounting, having an accounting degree would, could be very, very useful given, uh, depending on what field you want to go into. But um, for me, University of Washington had a pretty interesting entrepreneurship program like most people sort of laugh at it like what is an entrepreneurship focus Mm -hmm. the the basis of it was um a two-quarter class the first quarter is you'd you'd get into groups you'd form a business you'd write a business plan and at the end you would pitch to a board of directors who controlled a a bank account for the class Mm -hmm. that was um there in order to to make loans to students so that in the second quarter you would go and execute your business plan Mm -hmm. and having that experience with other people and trying to um you know make an actual product or service depending on what you try to do Mm -hmm. it was hugely valuable for me getting out there with with little to no risk and just trying something Mm -hmm. um, was awesome and i learned so so much from it and i think that took me from a place of like, oh, you can come up with an idea, you can execute on it, and you can actually make some money. Because yeah. we ended up turning a profit and, um, you know, did pretty well. We beat our projections by a little bit or whatever. I can't remember the numbers, but we did, we did well compared to what we thought we would do. Yeah, yeah. And that was just a really cool experience of like going out and actually starting something. So that, you know, of course, led me into other things, um, real estate related. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, so it sounds like a very good program and, and, you know, business 
studying business and studying entrepreneurship, I think it's, it's very, very different. I mean, a lot of the, if you go and get the business administration degree, um, you end up kind of like working for somebody. So you're kind of preparing yourself to, to follow. In totally. And then entrepreneurship, I think it's, you have to have the drive and you have to have the motivation to basically make it happen. Nothing is going to happen if you don't make it happen as an entrepreneur. Correct. And there's, especially where you and I live here in the Bay area, there's so many people who, you know, lean, you know, lean on the, um, the nostalgia and the, the beauty of the entrepreneur lifestyle. But, you know, realistically, when you work for yourself, whether you're an investor or you're trying to start a tech company, like you're working probably more hours for less money, especially for the first, you know, couple of years, maybe even the first 10 years, uh, than you would be if you would just went out and worked for somebody else. And so you're, you're taking a pretty serious lifestyle hit that you have to be prepared for. And that's where that, you know, trusting in yourself and that vision and that determination and drive comes into play that you know, not everybody is frankly cut out for it, nor should everybody necessarily pursue because it, it's hard. It's, mm-hmm. and it's not fun and it, and it weeds a lot of people out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning you have to do everything. So you have to be yes. the accountant. You have to be the, you know, the marketing guy, the sales guy, the product development guy, the, the cleaning staff, the guy who fixes the printer, like all of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The earlier, that's why one of my, you know, one of my great, the favorite book was like four hour work week, because that it's really kind of like enlightened a lot of people about, uh, you know, you don't have to do all that, these jobs, you can hire some, somebody, yeah. a virtual assistant to handle that and handle this and all of that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was literally just on a phone call with my friend, Ashley, who's also been on my podcast. Um, She was one of the early ones and I can't, I'll get you the episode number uh, for your show notes, but um, she is uh, uh, wholesaling houses in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And she and I were just chatting about, um, the, the process she's building out. And she basically is like, what I like to do is I like to generate leads and set up appointments. And that is a really crucial part of that flow. If anybody knows anything about real estate investing, especially on the flip wholesale side. Mm -hmm. And she is really good at it. And she's like, I find it to be super easy. And I was like, Ashley, that's because that's your superpower. You're really good at that. Yeah. And she's like, I, she's like, I was an agent. I really sucked as an agent or not sucked. I was mediocre as an agent, but I'm really good at this thing. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know why everyone thinks it's so hard. It's like, cause you found your thing. Yeah. And like, that's just to say that like, if you've got an idea or a skill set, that you don't have to be the person who does everything else. Like you can go partner with people who are really good at some of the other things like the construction or the, you know, the financing or whatever it is. Um, and finding a partner who complements the skills that you have or you don't have and, uh, is, is similarly minded. Like Mm -hmm. that can be so valuable or hiring it out in some cases, but finding that partnership, like if you're not, you don't have to be that person. Yeah. And eventually, I mean, you have to mind the business. So, um, you know, if you constantly kind of involve the little mechanics of, uh, of the accounting or in the, uh, you know, or fixing the printer or something right. like that, you know, all, all these little details, I mean, you're not really minding the business. There are other decisions 
that need to be made. There are other things that need to be, that you need to drive and you're the only one who can drive that. So it's really prioritizing what you can do, what you must do and everything else is, um, you know, can be delegated to somebody else. But I also want to honor the fact that especially when you're getting started and you may or may not be making a lot of money, like making those decisions to hire someone or delegate it out. It's, it's a real, it's like even a couple hundred dollars to somebody to help yeah. you with anything. It's like, it's a serious amount of money and it's a serious decision. Yeah. And you know, if you get to the other side of it where you're actually building, you know, solid revenue streams and you can afford to pay for some of these things like going back to our time thing like mm -hmm. that is huge but mm -hmm. taking those first couple of risks on hiring or leveraging out is is no small ticket and i think that that's where sometimes partnerships or mentorships or yeah. um, mm -hmm. just friendships come into play and and having people who can help support you in that stuff yeah so yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, as we mentioned, so there's a lot of time, time commitment uh, involves a lot of sacrifice and all of that. And I think in order to get through this and to uh, stay focused and, and to continue, because you have to, it's a steady, it's a marathon that we, you embark on. So you need to stay motivated. So what motivates you, uh, you know, as uh, in your career and in your goals and that to achieve financial freedom? Well, you know, you alluded to the Olympian title earlier, and for a long time in my life, that's what it was, like achieving that title, going and rowing in the Olympic Games, and being at the very tippy top of my chosen sport, like that's what motivated me. And then I, I crossed the finish line, uh, fourth place in the final, and, you know, just floundered for the next couple of years and really struggled to find it. Um, and that's definitely, you talk to any high level athlete, like that descent from that, that peak performance is, yeah. is not an easy thing. Um, but I over, over with a lot of help and some coaching and mentoring and, you know, all of the support of friends and family ended up finding uh, real estate. And I always sort of had a thought I would get into real estate, but never knew how or what that would look like. And, um, you know, as of now, I'm with, as you mentioned at the intro, uh, with the Gunderman Group, which is the number one team in the East Bay, which is Oakland and Berkeley and Alameda, um, some of those areas mm -hmm. uh, in the Bay Area. And I am working to to become an incredibly successful agent with that team because it's a high bar that they have set, as well as pursuing my real estate investing um, to, to produce financial freedom for me and my wife. And actually today, like right before I got on this call, we just closed on our second property. I just found out. Yeah. Um, so now we have two properties, you know, four units total, and we are, we are rocking and rolling in our little portfolio here. Uh -huh. So what uh, is this? Um, so I know that you're investing out of state as well. Yep. Right. So uh, can I ask like which state you're, you're investing and why? Yeah. Tacoma, Washington is okay. where both of our properties are. Yeah. Um, the reason is twofold. One, I told you I'm an, I'm an agent. I started as an agent here locally in the Bay Area. I've, bec I've become more knowledgeable in this market. And I just it cannot make financial sense of any of the numbers that I see. I'm, I know that people do make sense of it. However they do that, I don't yeah. know. Like buying at a four cap, I don't know how people do that. Like, yeah. 
or you know, anyways, we can digress there. But I, for me, for what I was looking to do with cash flow and, and long-term holding, it just wasn't going to make sense. Mm. So I started looking out at other markets. I looked in Sacramento, we looked yeah. at Fresno, we looked all over the place. And then we went out of the state. Mm. Um, we looked at Kansas City, we looked at some stuff in the Northeast where she's from. And ultimately, we were like, wait a second, why don't we look at a market like a secondary or tertiary market somewhere around where we travel otherwise. And I have family in Seattle. She has family in the Northeast. And we mm -hmm. just, I was like, Oh my gosh, duh, Tacoma. Um, Tacoma's getting like 2000 or more people a month moving there. The, the housing stock is pretty tired. It's mm -hmm. really not nearly as competitive yeah. um, as you know, Seattle, the Seattle areas. It's got a, it's got a military base about five miles south. It's got a port. It's got two major uh, colleges. Um, yeah. And it's got multiple industries. You know, tech is uh, slowly moving in there, um, as well as, um, you know, a lot of blue collar industries. Yeah. So it's really got a solid renter pool, as well as uh, ownership pool. And um, the rents were all sort of in that 800 to like $1,200. That's like a really nice sweet spot for yeah. a vast, like a two one will rent for somewhere in the eight to $1,200 range. It's, it's pushing up a little bit now, but it's really solidly in there and it makes and the numbers make sense in those mm -hmm. numbers. And I, one of the things I wanted to look for was a market where <clears throat> eight to $1,200 rents uh, existed and could thrive and if I could underwrite uh, a deal to have rents in that ballpark and it would still make sense, like I believe that you will not destroy eight to $1,200 rents, no matter what recession comes, yeah. no matter, you know, what happens is short of like atomic war. I mm -hmm. think eight to $1,200 rents will always be somewhere because um, the people who currently are affording that rental uh, amount are probably going to continue to be able to afford somewhere in that ballpark and people who are in like an a class who are spending you know let's just say two thousand dollars in it when it gets tight and they get mm -hmm. pinched they're going to come down to somewhere yeah. in that ballpark so you're going to have a conglomeration of people in that price point in the event of a, of a massive recession yeah I, yeah i agree and this is exactly where i invest as well but i don't invest in washington but in the same kind of category we invest in C-class and B-class properties, and the rents is anywhere between 750 to uh, in Cleveland. We probably get like uh, you know 900, 1100 mm -hmm. around that for some properties. Um, but yeah, so this is a sweet spot. Sweet spot B-class, C-class. Stay away from the uh, you know the uh, high uh, crime areas and uh, like the yep. B-class kind of neighborhood. But yeah, these are. For me, the seat less is kind of like the, the blue collar worker, the, the hourly worker, and um, and then kind of like the beat less is more like the manager, supervisor kind of right. uh, kind of level, and yeah, so they're always going to be there. And then yeah, if there's any kind of recession, that's that's the same feeling that I have, and I think that was proven also by uh, some articles that were written about that. That basically the luxury in the A class they're going to come down if there is a recession, but there's really a bottom. And then the people that are in CNB, they're going to stay at the same level. So absolutely, and so, yeah, we you feel know, it's good about that. Totally, and you know, there are there's a lot of um, 
a lot of moves into some of those markets like Tacoma is just booming compared to what it was, you know, just even five years ago. When I grew up in Seattle, you didn't go to Tacoma. It was sketchy. You just, it was not a place you go. Same thing with, I'm sure, some of the mm-hmm. neighborhoods that you're investing in. Um, but you're seeing a bit of a resurgence yeah. in some of these spaces now, especially with the millennials, my, my generation, moving out of places like San Francisco. You know, you look at the demographic information, the they're generally speaking, the Bay Area people are either going to Fresno or their Central Valley area, or they're going up to Sacramento. And then from yeah. those places, they're going to Oregon, they're going to uh, Idaho, and they're going to, into Texas. And then from there, who knows where they go. Yeah. But there's, you know, interesting demographic and population shifts that are happening in the direction of some of those types of markets. And if you can identify them, obviously... Uh, like Austin, Texas or Dallas, Fort Worth is all over everybody's mind and has been for five years. So Mm, maybe that one isn't quite the one you focus on, but I think it's been there, been there, done that kind of thing. Yeah. So we're looking for other markets that are not as mature or that in about to mature. And this is, you know, that's why we like like Cleveland and Memphis um, for, for these reasons. I mean, they're kind of like, they're coming back up uh, in the case of Cleveland yeah, uh, and then Memphis has been kind of like a steady climb for the uh, for a while. So. And one one thing that like the thing that really uh, the deal that we just closed on today as we're recording this mm-hmm. um, that really solidified it for me relative to the neighborhood was uh, obviously I did all this due diligence ahead of time and the the numbers worked out so we went and saw it, but then. I drove in on the main street, half a block away. There's a brand new Starbucks that got (laughs) built, (laughs) right? Literally, (laughs) I could throw a rock and hit the Starbucks from, and I was like, Starbucks knows a lot more than I do. So I'm going to follow up with them. They just built this building. Like this is for sure a year old or less. And, um, And so I think that people kind of are like, well, how the heck do I know if this is good or not? Like, well, look for a Starbucks, look for yeah. a Trader Joe's, look for a Walgreens, look for, you know, some of these stores that put in substantial infrastructure, sign long-term leases and do more research than you and I could ever hope to do. That's, yeah. a, that's a good little hack there for people who are just starting out. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, we had a in Midtown Memphis, we have a 20 unit apartment building there. And then, so when we were there last time, yeah, they, they built, they're building a, a Starbucks uh, a block away from beautiful. <laughs> the building. Now we know. Now we go from a seat last to beat last. <laughs> as soon as there's a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> We've made it. Um, the other thing too that we follow is kind of like Amazon, kind of like mm. where they're investing, where they're building their distribution center. Um, with, and then um, we also kind of with Memphis, you know, FedEx is in Memphis. They're in Cleveland and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So FedEx is like a pretty big hub. So the, the reason why we're following those, because they build a lot of warehouses, they hire a lot of uh, blue collar workers. And, and if you hire a lot of blue collars workers, you're going to need managers. So that's going to be, so that's really our B and C class kind of uh, where they're, where they're going to come from. So completely. And they move there because of the cost of living and the cost of labor and the cost of taxes and this and that. And the, and you know, some of these companies, believe it or not, give a shit about their uh, employees and their lifestyle. And, you know, they want to find places where they, these people can afford to live and have a good quality of life. And, you know, you keep, even if you make hundreds of thousands of dollars in the Bay Area, you, you, 
may not be, you know, having a good quality of life. And so if you can, if you're looking to invest, like finding these places that are drawing the attention of some of these larger companies or just people in general, mm-hmm. as, you know, a smaller city, a secondary or tertiary city to something big, you know, it's got, like for us, it was within a 30 uh, minute drive to the international airport. It's got a port, it's got an army base, it's got schools, you know, for you, you've got, um, you know, a variety of uh, industries moving in Amazon, medical, this and that, mm-hmm. you know, whatever your flavor is like, yeah. you know, finding those markers and, and just following yeah. them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. So for you, like for managing these, uh, these properties in Washington, do you have um, like, do you have property management in place and you have, how, how did you, cause you have to have like, the, are you buying them like turnkey or are you buying them so that you rehab them? Uh, and that's another like a burr strategy or that's another big thing. Like you obviously do a lot of turnkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I am buying to add value to it. So um, we were fortunate enough to be introduced to a contractor who uh, has been amazing for us. And it's really important if you're going to invest out of state to have strategic partnerships in the local market. Um, so we're buying, we're coming in and, and we've sort of built out like a menu of like, let's just do it like the last one. So it's like floors, paint, you know, baseboards, appliances, Formica countertops, um, you know, new lights, etc. <clears throat> and he gets it done and hands it back to us. And then we actually have decided to, to work on self-managing. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a property manager on site or it, it, not on site, but who was taking care of our first property long story short is they were spending way too much money on stupid stuff. And so we, we parted ways with them and we, at the same time, the tenant uh, that we, we put into our unit that was coming available right then was actually a handyman uh, on the crew of our contractor who was looking for a place to, to settle with his two boys. Mm-hmm. So we ran his background check. We worked out a deal with him that he gets a rent credit every month okay. for uh, basically being our on-site manager. Uh, we get him to go over to the, his or the other unit um, for, we get a, basically an hour of his time a month or 12 hours a year, whichever comes first. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he gets a rent credit. He goes and fixes the dryer. He unclogs the toilet. He lets the electrician in, uh, whatever the case is, and we don't have to mm-hmm. deal with it. And then we save on the property management. He gets a rent discount and everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's very good. And you, and you're doing good for him as well. So that's, uh, that's of course. Yeah. Overall. And, and, you know, we're going to pull him in onto the second unit or the second property we just bought and we're going to give him something similar. We haven't negotiated it yet, but we're, no. you know, he's, he's going to get something similar. And this next property is only about five minutes from the one where he lives. So it's going to be pretty easy for him. And, you know, he's got some trade skills. He's got, he's pretty responsible. He's a ex Marine and, um, you know, really great guy and just is trying to get himself established in, in Tacoma and, you know, raise his kids in a safe, good environment. So, you know, a lot of people think about like, why would someone do this? Like, why would someone live in this house? Like, or why would someone take that deal or, or mm-hmm. 
buy it or sell it for that price. And I, I think that that goes to maybe a bigger comment that, that took me a while to realize, but you know, everyone's motivation and life circumstances are totally different. And, you know, we can talk about numbers and, and, dollars and and metrics all day and and talking about Starbucks and where they're going next but you know it all comes down to people in this business in any business but understanding the motivations of people understanding um what a win-win would look like you know trying to to put something together that everyone can be really happy about because what is real for you and what is necessary for you is not is definitely not the same as the for the person on the other side of the deal yeah, exactly. Yeah, we all have like a, a point of view, a particular point of view, a particular goal that we want to to accomplish. And, you know, this is what I, you know, when I talk to uh, people or I talk about my business and, you know, why I'm recommending this property in Memphis and stuff like that. So you have to understand that my point of view is passive income, cash flow and high return. So that's what I'm looking for and value add, right? Mm-hmm. So and for me, this market here in the Bay Area, that doesn't work for me. Because, right. you know, for obvious reasons, too, too, uh, too much money, the, even uh, after, if you wanted to cash flow, you have to put too much money in, then your return is... Uh, is uh, then is your cash low. on cash is nothing yeah. or, or exactly. negative maybe or it's whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> it works for some people, you know? So, um, so, but yeah, it's just, everybody has kind of like a, a perspective or a point of view or a goal they want to achieve. So, yeah, you have to respect that. that. And that part is super important that like reverse engineering Mm -hmm. because yeah, like you can always find a better investment. Like you add, like there's always something out there that'll return a half a point more or, you know, a little bit easier or this, you know, whatever. But like you ultimately have to decide what your end game is because real estate is just a vehicle, just like stocks and bonds and all that. That's just a vehicle. Like whatever you like, are you trying to retire on a portfolio of cash flow? That's one thing. Are you trying to make, you know, 15, 20% on your capital in a year? That's probably a flip. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's all just a vehicle of how you get there and knowing your end goal before you start will help guide you mm-hmm. so that you can be like, Hey, Eric, I got, you know, this money. I just want to park it somewhere and I want to earn, you know, six or 8% on it, you know, get a little premium on the market. And you're like, great. I got this fantastic turnkey deal out in Memphis, mm-hmm. or, you know, I want to, I want to get really serious about this and, you know, want to, you know, flip houses. Like, okay, maybe you should go in an area where there's really high appreciation. Yeah. Bay area is not a bad place for that, but, um, you know, or if you can find the deal, of course, but yeah. you know, but the, the point is like finding that end goal in mind and, and then marrying the strategy to it. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And to me, like, it's also a circle because sometimes you kind of, uh, and I know we're, we're getting close to our time here. So I want to, but it's kind of a circle. You kind of do your strategy and then, okay, well, the strategy and the goal, the, the investment vehicle that I choose to do that may not be right. So I tweak this, I tweak the strategy and then eventually, uh, in order for us, you know, uh, before we got into the out-of-state passive income, we did a lot of pivoting uh, oh, yeah. here in the area and we went to commercial, we went to this, that and the other thing. And now we, found, we finally found an alignment between our goals and then the strategy and the uh, the market that we're investing, the type of properties that we're investing and stuff like that. But it took it took a few years to figure out exactly what the right combination was. 
hundred percent. And, and you outlined that on my podcast, which you should link to if, if you want to hear more of Eric's story, go check that one out. And, uh, he, he goes deep on, on all those pivots and it was, he did quite a few of them. So, oh yeah, don't give up. <laughs> don't give up. Exactly. Yeah. So Hans, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for a great conversation. I have, I have a lot more that I would like to talk to you about, but, uh, we're out of time. And uh, so I just want to give you an opportunity if you have, uh, if you want to share a book that you would want to, that you would recommend or any kind of uh, a philosophy or uh, that you live by that you want to share. Um, um, well, the book, I think if you're, if you're early in your real estate adventures and you've really had no exposure is, is rich dad, poor dad. I mean, that's the most cliche real estate answer, but there's a reason for that yeah. um, because it is really powerful and it helps redefine this for you. Um, and then beyond that, I, gosh, for real estate investing, it just, dep- again, it depends on what direction you want to go. So, so message me if you want a better recommendation after you read Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, <laughs> exactly. And then I think that um, the philosophy, something that's really uh, turning in my head right now is um, what questions are you asking yourself? Like what quality, like, whenever you, whenever anybody asks you a question, just something as simple as, you know, what color is your tie? You know, everyone's head immediately goes to like every tie they've seen, what style they've seen on this guy, whatever. Um, and the same thing is true when you ask yourself questions internally, like, why is this happening to me? You're going to go mm-hmm. search for that answer. Why did that guy get lucky? And I didn't, you're going to search for that answer. So if you can start controlling the questions that are in your head, mm-hmm. instead of like, why did I get unlucky? How about what can I do to make this a better situation? Yeah. Totally different answer. And that sets you on a complete different trajectory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Changing, changing the question so that it's, uh, it, it really sets you up on a better, more constructive uh, thinking process. Yeah. hundred really, yeah, percent. This is very good. Well, Hans, thank you very much. Uh, and I'll put in the comments, uh, kind of links to your podcast, uh, another way to play. And, uh, and also the link to my interview with, uh, when you interviewed me, Hans, and, um, we can share some more, uh, good stories. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you for having me on the show today. It's been a real pleasure and I'm uh, always honored to, to talk to you and to be on your show. So thank you again. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.